Well, good morning. I guess I was playing keys so hard I knocked over the stand, so I'll try not to preach so hard that I knock over the pulpit, but just in case, I'm kind of glad there's no one in that front row. Well, if you could open your Bibles uh, to Galatians chapter 1, we're going to be working through the whole chapter this morning, Uh, but let me read the first 10 verses and follow along as I do that. Galatians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come to you this morning and we're asking uh, that you would cause this word to grip us. Uh, We need it to grip our hearts so that we might heed your word today. Help us to see the Lord Jesus. Help us to be more in tune to his gospel today as a result of this text. Help me, Lord, I'm weak. I need your strength this morning. I pray that you'd help me to preach your word well. And we commit this to you in Christ's name. Amen. I'm wondering if you've ever had the experience of trying to convince someone that there's danger lurking when they don't see it. Those of us with little kids have this experience all the time, which is why we're constantly saying things like, don't eat that, put that thing down, watch out, there's a car coming. See, little kids need that kind of intervention because being mere children, they aren't thinking about danger. Their little brains just aren't wired that way, and so we parents are obligated to help our kids respond to danger even though they don't see it. Now, our text this morning was written to a group of Christians called the Galatians, who, kind of like little kids, weren't seeing a lurking danger in their midst. As we'll see in our passage, that lurking danger was a false gospel, not the one true gospel that saves. And it's quite possible for you to sit through the next 40 minutes or so with similar kid-like naiveness. See, most of us don't feel all that threatened by false gospels. False gospels seem like a somewhere else, someone else kind of problem. You and I, it seems, are too smart to be duped by something like that. But I want to encourage you this morning not to check out as if our text isn't relevant for you, as if it's not possible that you could be duped by a false gospel. Instead, listen carefully. You need this text, Christian. Allow God to use it to make you more attuned to the true gospel 
and therefore more alert to any gospel distortions lurking in your neighborhood. So let's dive in. And since we'll be working through the whole book of Galatians together over the next few months, let me make a few introductory comments about the book as a whole. Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul, as we see in verse 1. And as verse 2 indicates, it wasn't merely written to one church, but to multiple churches in the Roman province of Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. Now, which churches are we talking about exactly? Well, there's some debate about this, but I think it's almost certainly the churches that Paul and Barnabas established on Paul's first missionary journey, which is recorded in Acts 13 and 14. Churches like Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Now, these churches had initially received Paul's gospel, which emphasized that we are justified, that is credited as righteous before God, only by faith. We'll be talking a lot more about justification by faith as we work through Galatians. And the Galatians initially received this gospel with joy. In fact, when Paul and Barnabas first came to Pisidian Antioch, they were preaching primarily in the Jewish synagogues. But when the Jews opposed them, Acts 13 says this, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you. That's the Jews. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord commanded us saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, these are Galatian Gentiles, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So the Galatians initially received Paul's gospel. But despite this, danger was lurking. For Paul's opponents, the Judaizers, viciously attacked Paul's teaching that we are justified by faith alone. They insisted that Gentile believers, like the Galatians, adapt Jewish practices like circumcision as a necessary ingredient for their salvation. And these Judaizers slandered Paul as a false Teacher. They said that his gospel was man-made. They taught that Paul was a renegade apostle who mooched his gospel off the apostles in Jerusalem and then promoted a distorted teaching that keeping the Mosaic law is no longer necessary for Christians. These Judaizers had crept into Galatia and the Galatians weren't seeing the danger. And so like a parent warning his children, Paul writes to call the Galatians back to spiritual safety, which comes from his gospel alone. And right out of the gate, he pulls no punches. In verses 1 to 5 of our text, Paul heralds his gospel as the only gospel that saves. And his first move is to assert that his saving gospel came from God himself. In verse 1, he says that he's an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. That's a refutation of the Judaizers' claim that Paul is just a man-fearing poser. But no, Paul, and by extension his gospel, is from Jesus Christ and God the Father, the highest source possible. 
And don't gloss over that assertion that God raised Jesus from the dead at the end of verse 1. That's not just fluff from Paul. Christ's resurrection means that we're in a new covenant, a new age in salvation history that changes everything, including the application of the Old Testament law. Now, Paul isn't unpacking all that yet, but he is front-loading his argument by reminding the Galatians about Christ's resurrection. And in verse 2, Paul mentions that there's other brothers with him. I think that's meant to show that he's not the only one who sees himself as a valid gospel messenger. So having established that he and his saving gospel comes from God, Paul now shows how his gospel saves in verse 3 to 5. He offers grace and peace to the Galatians. And again, those words aren't just some fluffy formality. No, only Paul's gospel brings grace and peace. His gospel is the conduit through which God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ offer these blessings of salvation. And I think grace is particularly in view here because as we'll see in a moment, Paul's distractors distort the grace of Christ. And how is that grace delivered? Well, verse 4 makes it clear. Jesus gave himself for our sins. Boy, that truth never gets old, does it? He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He laid himself down as a sacrifice. He took God's wrath on himself when he died on the cross. No one forced him to do that, Jesus says in John 10. He willingly laid his life down for sinners like us. And why did he do that? Well, it's to deliver us from this present evil age, Paul says. That means to rescue us from a world filled with evil, a world filled with lurking dangers. That means to pluck us out of bondage to old covenant works of the law-like circumcision. Because of Christ's sacrifice, we're in a new covenant age. An age where we stand before God by grace alone, not by works. And the grace resulting from Christ's sacrifice is all according to the will of God the Father who deserves glory forever and ever. The gospel of grace that comes from Christ glorifies God because his sacrifice was in accordance with God's will. God gets all the glory in Paul's gospel, the only gospel that saves. So now after heralding his gospel from God, which brings grace, Paul shifts into bulldog mode and goes right at the naive Galatians. Now, I don't know if you've ever been berated by somebody. I have. It's not fun. Verses 6 to 10 read like a beratement to me. Paul really goes at those Galatians. And why? It's for going after a different gospel. In their case, the perverted gospel of the Judaizers who insisted on a faith plus works orientation to salvation. Paul starts by saying he's astonished in verse 6. And that's not the good kind of astonishment, like when you find a hundred bucks under the couch cushions. No, Paul's absolutely flabbergasted. He's like a basketball coach smashing his clipboard on the gym floor. 
because of the Galatians' shocking behavior. Notice that the other gospel was moving the Galatians in the wrong direction, as verse 6 says. Paul says that they're deserting him who called them. And this desertion is happening quickly. Now, most likely Galatians was written right around 47, 48 AD, which was within a year or two of Paul actually being with them in person. So their desertion is happening at alarming speed. And note that they are deserting from something. They're deserting from the grace of Christ. God had called the Galatians into grace secured by Christ's sacrifice. The Galatians had initially received God's grace when they believed Paul's gospel. But now they risk throwing that salvation away. And not only had the Galatians begun to sever themselves from the grace of Christ, they had also begun to subscribe themselves to what Paul calls a different gospel at the end of verse 6. Paul immediately qualifies that statement in verse 7, saying, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The gospel that the Galatians were embracing was no true gospel at all because there's only one authentic gospel. The gospel from God, which Paul described in verses 1 to 5. Nonetheless, troublemaking Judaizers wanted to distort the gospel of Christ into something else. By the way, isn't that exactly how Satan works? He takes what's from God and good and he twists it. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden when he twisted God's commandment to Adam and Eve. And though Paul doesn't mention Satan here, he's always the ultimate culprit, isn't he? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, Satan wants to distort the one gospel that saves. He wants to produce all sorts of believable counterfeits that look and sound like the real deal, but in the end sever us from the grace of Christ. And the childish Galatians were being duped by one such counterfeit gospel. And it turns out that those doing Satan's bidding by perverting the gospel of Christ are doomed for judgment. In verses 8 to 10, Paul unleashes two rounds of curses against the troublemakers in Galatia. And when Paul says, let him be accursed, that's serious stuff. He's essentially saying, let them go to hell to those perverting his gospel. That's the mindset the Galatians should have towards those who twists Christ's grace. The first round of curses comes in verse 8, when Paul says that if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Several things to note here. First, the prominence of preaching. Paul expected the Galatians to stick to the preached message he had given them. The true gospel came to the Galatians by preaching, so too the false gospel of the Judaizers came through preaching. 
Second, note the preeminence of the gospel itself. A preached message is to be weighed by its content. If the content aligns with Paul's preaching in Galatia, it should be accepted. If not, it should be refused. The authority of the gospel proclamation itself trumps the apparent status of the messenger. See, even if Paul or one of his associates preaches a contrary gospel, they're to be accursed. Even if an angel from heaven should preach a contrary gospel, they are accursed. The second round of curses comes in verse 9, where Paul reminds the Galatians that his anathemas against the false teachers are not new to them. He had already told them not to listen to any contrary gospel, and now he repeats his warning with the broadest application yet. If anyone, he says, is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Again, note the preeminence of the gospel message itself. It doesn't matter who the preacher is, Paul, an angel, or anyone else out there. What matters is whether the gospel being preached accords with the one gospel that saves, the gospel which the Galatians had received from Paul. And in verse 10, on the heels of pronouncing these curses, Paul challenges the Galatians to consider whether he is acting as someone with God's interests in mind or merely as a man-fearer. Remember, the Judaizers slandered Paul as a weak-kneed apostle, only concerned with man's interests. And basically, Paul saying, do I look like a man-pleaser to you Galatians when I pronounce these curses? Am I seeking man's approval or God's? Obviously, God's. Am I trying to please man? Obviously not. If he were, he would no longer be a legitimate servant of Christ. And so having pronounced curses on the gospel-twisting Judaizers, Paul now substantiates those curses in verses 11 to 24. Let's pick it up there in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. 
Now, if Paul's apostleship is man-centered, weak sauce, like the Judaizers claimed, then his curses don't amount to much, do they? So Paul spends the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 proving that his apostleship, and by extension his gospel, is authorized by God. Verses 11 and 12 are the summary of Paul's argument. And note once again the prominence of preaching. The gospel that Paul preached to the Galatians is not man's gospel. How come? Because, Paul continues in verse 12, he didn't receive it from any man, nor was he taught it. See, Paul is probably quoting one of the Judaizers' attacks against him. They claimed that their gospel was from God. And when they insisted on circumcision, they could simply crack open their Old Testament and say, see, it's right here. We have the gospel from God. That Paul guy with his teaching that we don't need the works of the law to be justified, he's omitting essential elements from his gospel to please man. But Paul denies that his gospel is man-centered in any way. (laughs) He didn't get it from man. He wasn't taught it. He received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul plays out in detail how that revelation came to him. And his central point is this. He was never, not even a little bit, influenced by man when he first received his gospel. That independence from man is evident in his conversion. Paul reminds the Galatians about his former life in Judaism. In verse 13, he used to persecute the church of God violently, trying to destroy it. It was Paul, then named Saul, who approved of Stephen's execution in Acts 8. It was he in Acts 8.3 who was ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. It was he in Acts 9.1 who was breathing threats and murder against the church. How could mere man turn such a stone-cold God-hater? And not only did Paul persecute the church, But he was absolutely jazzed about Judaism, according to verse 14. Advancing beyond his peers, being extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. I don't think that means that he simply liked the Old Testament a lot. I think it means that Paul was a Pharisee. He was living the kind of life that the Judaizers prized. The kind of life that was overcooked with passion for Jewish customs and hated the gospel of grace. How could mere man turn around such a religious zealot? Of course, God can only do that kind of thing. Only God can take God-hating, church-persecuting sinners and give them new life. And that's exactly what Paul did for, or what God did for Paul. God, who set Paul apart before he was born, called him by grace. Verse 15 says. I think that idea of being set apart from the womb points to Paul's prophet-like apostolic appointment. And then in space and time, God called Paul to himself. And you probably know the story of how Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. That's what verse 16 is talking about. God revealed his son to Paul. 
That's what salvation is. It's seeing Jesus. It's having the scales fall from your eyes so that you can behold what you couldn't see before, the glory of God's Son. God's Son who willingly gave himself for our sins. God's Son who plucked us out of this present evil age and brought us into grace by justifying us through faith. And I want to say to anyone here who's not yet a Christian, God can remove the scales from your eyes. He saved Paul when he was fighting against God. He can certainly save you. What would prevent you from asking God to open your eyes to the glory of his son today? What's keeping you from doing that? Dear unbeliever, ask God to turn the lights on so that you see what you can't see right now. The beauty of Christ who died in the place of sinners like you. Verse 16 says that God, not man, but God, revealed his son to Paul so that he might preach him among the Gentiles. Gentiles just like the Galatians. Paul's conversion proves that his gospel was never influenced by man, and Paul spends the rest of Galatians 1 showing that he remained independent from man in his early Christian life as well. Now, my wife Katie is an immigrant and we recently submitted some paperwork to the U.S. government where we went into great detail about our lives over the past five years. We had to indicate where we've lived, where we've worked, with exact dates, any travel we've done outside the U.S. We had to validate that we've paid our taxes, not committed crimes, all to prove that my wife has been living ethically and legitimately as an immigrant to the U.S., I think something like that is happening here at the end of Galatians 1. Paul goes into great detail about his early Christian life in order to prove that he's living ethically and legitimately as an apostle. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 16. He didn't immediately consult with anyone or go up to Jerusalem to the other apostles when he came to faith. Remember, the Judaizers taught that Paul got his gospel from the Jerusalem apostles and then distorted it. Paul refutes that claim by showing that he was independent from them even in the earliest days of his faith in Christ. In fact, he journeyed not to Jerusalem, but eastward into the Roman province of Arabia and then returned to Damascus. And after three years... Only then did Paul go to Jerusalem, verse 18 says. But notice the limited scope of that visit. He only saw Cephas, that's Peter, for a mere 15 days. He didn't see any of the other apostles except for James. And note how adamant he is about that detail in verse 20, when he swears before God that he's not lying. See, the Galatians were having a hard time buying Paul's story. And Paul's saying, look guys, here's my travel itinerary. I've got the receipts. Before God, I'm telling you the truth. Then after that short visit to Jerusalem, Paul journeys to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. That's north of Israel, Gentile territory. And he's still unknown in person to the Judean churches in the vicinity of Jerusalem, i.e. where the apostles are. 
Those churches don't know Paul's face, but they rejoice when they hear that he who once persecuted them is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of Paul. I think that's a subtle jab at the Judaizers. The appropriate response to Paul's gospel is to glorify God, not to criticize Paul as if he and his gospel are from man. So there you have it. Paul's conversion and his early Christian life bear witness to the fact that his gospel came from God. It was independent of any human influence. His curses against the Judaizers bear weight. His warning to not listen to any other gospel besides his is the warning of a true apostle. Therefore, the childish Galatians, struggling to see the dangerous gospel perversion lurking in their midst, should take heed. Now, brothers and sisters, it's easy to look back at those first century Galatians and think, wow, those guys were stupid. Boy, they really needed that stiff warning. But let's not do that this morning. Let's take heed lest we too unwittingly embrace some gospel perversion lurking in our midst. The sober reality is that our culture is saturated with pseudo-gospels that sound a lot like real Christianity. And if we're not actively holding on to the true gospel for dear life, the gospel which ushers in grace by faith alone will fall prey to gospel perversions that sever us from Christ. How about what I'm calling soft gospel perversions. Perversions which downplay the more unpalatable doctrines of Christianity. Try telling your average Mainer that they're a sinner because of some guy named Adam who lived thousands of years ago. Try telling your average Mainer that because of their sin they deserve hell, a place of eternal conscious torment. See, even if you say those things in the most compassionate way, which is how you should say those things, Most people are totally offended by such ideas. And if we're not actively clinging to every doctrine in God's word, including those difficult doctrines, we'll end up child-proofing the gospel's hard edges. We'll replace the true gospel for something that's softer and cozier that doesn't really save. Or how about free pass gospel perversions? Perversions which abandon the moral claims of the Bible and give a free pass to sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 says this. Do not be deceived. See, we can be deceived about this stuff. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, how can the Bible be any clearer? You can't be hooking up with your boyfriend or girlfriend and inherit the kingdom of God. You can't be living a homosexual lifestyle or some other sexually perverse lifestyle and go to heaven. You can't be a drunkard and receive salvation. And yet how our culture howls against those who call sin, sin. You could get fired for believing those things. You can be socially excommunicated for standing on the moral claims of the Bible. 
And if we're not actively clinging to the true gospel that saves, holding on to it for dear life, we'll give a free pass to those who indulge such sinful lifestyles. And worse, we'll give ourselves a free pass when we struggle with those sins. I could go on. How about fly solo gospel perversions which allow you to have Christ without really engaging the church? Or how about health and wealth gospel perversions which promise here and now prosperity and ignore the Bible's teachings on suffering and self-denial? Or how about all the cults like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, which add to the gospel once and all delivered to the saints? See, there are lurking gospel perversions all around us. And it would be naive, Christian, for you to assume that you're not vulnerable to them. And consider how the preciousness of the gospel attracts counterfeits. Jonathan Edwards said that the more valuable a commodity is, the more likely it is to be counterfeited. That's why people don't counterfeit dust bunnies. They counterfeit diamonds, money, precious metals. Should we not expect then that the most valuable commodity ever, the precious gospel of grace, will have many convincing counterfeits? And consider Satan's skill in producing counterfeits. His very identity is the father of lies. He's the deceiver of the whole world. He can disguise himself as an angel of light. And consider not only his skill in producing counterfeits, but his ferocity in doing so. He's super motivated to bring us down. He's prowling like a roaring lion. He's making war with God's offspring. He's intent on deceiving, if possible, even the elect. And consider your susceptibility to being deceived. How many of us have been fooled by some phishing scam online? How many of us have been bamboozled by a sleazy salesman or duped by a cunning liar? And if we can be deceived in the visible, physical realm, does it not follow that we can also be deceived in the invisible, spiritual realm? Now, lest I misunderstood, let me say this. No wiles of Satan can snatch you, Christian, out of Christ's hand. If you're in Christ, you cannot be pulled out of Christ, praise God. But remaining in Christ is not some passive beach chair activity. In the here and now, while Satan rages against you, you must actively resist him. You must do your darndest to repel his gospel-distorting lies. And that starts by admitting your vulnerability to gospel perversions. It starts by saying, you know what, I can actually be deceived. I'm actually not immune from embracing another gospel. Yes, it appears that I'm following Christ right now, but I can actually fall away into some gospel counterfeit if I'm not alert. So admit your vulnerability to gospel perversions so that you're not naive to danger like a little kid. So that you don't stop holding on to the one and only gospel that brings salvation. Now there's probably a hundred other applications we could take from this text. But I just want to leave you with one more. Hold on to the gospel by giving the preached word your full attention. I hope you caught the emphasis on preaching in our passage. You need preaching more than you think you do. 
Preaching is the main way that the gospel from God reaches us. And yes, today we have the internet and study Bibles and we can read the scriptures for ourselves, but that has not replaced our need to hear the word preached. In some ways, all that technology means that we need the preached word more than ever. You see, God has put shepherds in place over his church in part to defend her from false gospels. That's why Titus 1.9 says that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that, he may not, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. See, that's a high calling. We're not all qualified for that sort of thing. That's what your elders are called to do. And the primary way that they give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict is through preaching. Right here behind this pulpit. So if you're going to do one thing to hold tightly to the true gospel such that you don't fall prey to Satan's wiles, let me suggest this. Give the preaching of God's word your full attention. When someone preaches from this pulpit, you should be 100% locked in. What does that look like? Well, it looks like not allowing your phone to distract you during the service. Maybe you just need to turn that thing off. Or maybe if your electronic Bible is too distracting, and I'm not saying that it necessarily is too distracting in your case, but if it is, maybe you should crack open a book Bible instead. It looks like fighting to pay attention during the sermon. Not daydreaming about the afternoon football game. Not allowing the fact that the preacher isn't your favorite preacher or perhaps isn't preaching his A game that morning to cause you to tune out. Perhaps it looks like taking notes during the sermon. I'm not a big notes guy, but maybe that's helpful for you. Let's hold tightly to the gospel by giving the preaching of God's word the attention it deserves so that we might remain ever and always true to the precious gospel of grace. Brothers and sisters, let's cling to this gospel with all we've got. Let's resolve never ever to embrace a different gospel but to stay faithful to him who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that in our sin, you sent us the gospel in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful that because of him, who gave himself for us, we can have salvation. And Lord, our desire is to hold on to that gospel. And we recognize that we need you to help us. We need you to help us not to be naive, but to hold tightly to your word, to your truth, to your gospel, without turning aside. So help us, Father. Help us to pay attention to the word of Christ. And would you keep us to the end? We thank you for this time. In your word, we commit it all to you. In Christ's name, amen.